The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Why don't you turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Jude, second to last book in the Bible. So if you can find Revelation, just turn back a page or two and you'll be there in the short little epistle of Jude. When you're there, I'd like to draw your attention to the third verse and then go ahead and pray one more time. Book of Jude. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you as well. Are we going to be able to get that up there on the screens? There we go. Okay. Notice what Jude writes here. I, I, I love how he addresses the believer. He reminds us that we're beloved by God. What a blessing that is to know. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing to gather together here tonight and to worship you. God, we're so thankful for your love and your mercy and your faithfulness. And now as we consider your word and what Jude writes here, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds tonight. God, we pray that you would encourage us in the faith, that we would leave here fortified in the truth, better equipped for evangelism. Lord, have your way here now as we consider your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever talked to a non-Christian friend or maybe a coworker or family member about God or uh, your belief in Jesus or how you enjoy reading the Bible only to hear your words shot out of the sky with an objection like there isn't any good evidence that God exists? Or they might say religions, including Christianity, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Or they say the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. How could you believe in a God like that? Or the Bible condones slavery. It oppresses women. It promotes hatred of homosexuals. Many critics of Christianity have an arsenal of these kinds of conversation-halting objections ready to unload at the first inkling someone's about to talk to them about Jesus. Have you bumped into any of these objections? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, you certainly have. These are the kinds of things that people bring up in conversations when the topic gets on to, or the topic of conversation switches over to religious subject matter. Question for you. When these kinds of objections come up, do you feel that you're well prepared in those instances to contend earnestly for the faith, as we're told to do here in the book of Jude? What does Jude mean when he exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, let's break it down. That word contend literally means to fight. The word earnestly means seriously or intensely. In that phrase, the faith refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So Jude here, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, instructs Christians to put up a fight for the truth of God's Word. Now, don't misunderstand Jude. He's not encouraging us to get into physical fights with people. No, don't do that. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that we're to live peaceably with people. He said, so far as it depends upon you, Christian, live peaceably with all. So we're not to be getting into physical fights 
with people. When Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith, he's talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions and false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. With truth. So contending for the faith really is just speaking the truth, answering people's questions about God, answering their objections to Jesus, responding to their criticisms about the Bible. But that's not always easy to do, is it? It often takes research and study, preparation ahead of time. Well, tonight, to help us be a little bit better equipped to contend earnestly for the faith, what I'd like to do in our time together is offer some concise responses to several of these popular objections that atheists and skeptics are bringing up in conversations today with Christians. And my hope in doing this is that you'll leave here encouraged, but also just a little bit better equipped to talk to your non-Christian friends about your faith in Jesus. The first objection I'd like to address concerns the topic of slavery in the Bible. It's not uncommon to hear atheists say that the Bible condones slavery. Only evil, selfish men would ever concoct a book like that. How might we respond to that? Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out to them that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity, and it wouldn't exist if it weren't for mankind's sin. The Bible says very clearly that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. In both the Old and New Testaments, we're also instructed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Slavery wouldn't exist anywhere if people loved one another that way. A loving person doesn't kidnap people, lock them up, and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel and evil, and the men who pinned the Bible knew that. Kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 21, verse 16, says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death there would probably be a lot fewer abductions today if kidnappers, when found guilty, were quickly condemned and put to death. But we've done away with the death penalty in many states, and now society is paying the price. The slave trade is alive and well right now in our country. And one of the reasons why is because we're light on crime in many states. Another verse that made it clear kidnapping people and forcing them to be slaves is wrong can be found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. It says there, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a what? Slave. Or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So the Old Testament made it clear that these activities were wrong. What about the New Testament, though? Does it take a softer stand on the topic of slavery? Well, the answer is no. In the New Testament, enslavers, men-stealers, or slave traders, depending on your translation, are condemned alongside murderers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. So then why do some people believe that the Bible condones slavery or endorses it? Well, I think it's because the Bible does have a handful of verses where God instructed the Israelites on how they were to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants to pay off debts. You weren't allowed to sell someone else. That was a death penalty sin. But if you were indebted to somebody, you could sell yourself to them for a certain allotted amount of time to work off your debt. And the practice was very common. It's spoken about in Leviticus 25 and elsewhere. So for those servants' sakes, 
God gave the Israelites instructions on how they were to be treated. The instructions were actually given to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. Paul summarized the Bible's instructions regarding these servants with these words in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The Bible never encouraged or condoned the horrific kind of slavery that involved kidnapping, selling, and mistreating humans. You won't find it in the Bible. Well, Charlie, the God of the Bible commanded the Israelites to kill the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. A loving God would never do that. If someone brings this up with you, you might ask them this question. Have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask them this question. Do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? I can assure you of this. The answer will almost always be no. So then you might lovingly, humbly bring the person up to speed a little bit and remind them of, of what the Canaanites were doing at the time of Joshua. The Bible tells us that they were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their children by fire to their god Molech. They were also committing incest, adultery, polygamy, bestiality, witchcraft, and the Bible says a variety of other abominable customs. So the Canaanites had become a dangerous, cancerous threat, not only to their posterity and their neighbors, but to the Israelites. So God, in his wisdom, determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And he sent in the Israelite military to put a stop to the wickedness, just as, centuries later, he would bring in the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to put a stop to the same activities when the Jewish people began engaging in the exact same sins. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, that God is not one to show partiality. He brought judgment on the Canaanites. Centuries later, he brought judgment on the Jewish nation. Friends, God created the earth, as you know, and all of its inhabitants. So he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. All of life belongs to him. If he deems a certain country or culture ripe for judgment, a dangerous threat to the rest of humanity, he can bring in a military force and put an end to them. It's his planet. We're his people. Everything belongs to him. Think back to World War II. Most of us believe that the Allied powers, which included the USA, had the right and even God's approval to go to war against Japan and Nazi Germany to put a stop to the great evils they were committing. When President Trump came into office in 2017, he authorized our military to wipe out ISIS. Remember them? Remember some of the evil things they were doing? I think most Americans approved of that decision. Well, this raises a question. If human governments have the right to send in the military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible today were around at the time of Joshua and were aware of the great atrocities going on in the land of Canaan, I think many of them would have been in favor of God's intervention I do find it a bit odd that atheists today commonly say if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. 
In the book of Joshua, we have an example of God putting a stop to some of the evil, and atheists single out that section of Scripture and say, a loving God would never do that. Hmm. Seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. Well, the skeptic says, surely God doesn't even exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. People who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone repent and believe in him? No, they led him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. What evidence, someone asks? How about the fine-tuning of the universe? Or the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms? Or the information we've discovered encoded into DNA? Or hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible? Or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, just for starters? I agree with Dr. Norman Geisler, a great biblical scholar who went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He wrote these words. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet, he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. End quote. I so agree with that. I also concur with J.P. Moreland. He's a Christian philosopher. In an interview a while back with Lee Strobel, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, he said this. He said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free, end quote. God is so wise. There's plenty of evidence there for anyone who wants to know him, and yet he's hidden enough so that if you want to have nothing to do with him, you can freely go your way. Well, the skeptic says, you and I are both atheists. You, you don't believe in Zeus or Thor, and neither do I. I just take it one deity further. I don't believe in the God of the Bible either. In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins encouraged his readers to use this objection with Christians. And so it has become quite popular. If someone tries to convince you that you're actually an atheist, you might just pull out your phone and look up the word atheist for them in a dictionary app and have your friend read it. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in the existence of any God. Christians do believe God exists, so Christians are not atheists in the slightest degree. Now, I understand why people don't believe in Zeus or Thor. There is no good evidence that either of those deities ever existed. That's why it's hard to find somebody today who believes in either one of them. But more than two billion people believe in the God of the Bible today. Why is that? Well, because there's good intellectually satisfying evidence that the God of the Bible is really there. Well, the skeptic says, if the evidence is so compelling, why are there so many atheists? Well, actually, according to a recent Pew Research Center survey, atheists only make up 
of the U.S. population. Agnostics, 5%. Most people believe God exists. I agree with that well-known British preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, as to why most atheists today have rejected God. Spurgeon said this, I am persuaded that men think there is no God because they wish there were none. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin, so they try to get an easy conscience by denying his existence, end quote. If you happen to be an atheist here tonight, or maybe watching this at a future date on the internet, I would ask you, might that be what's going on in your heart? I've discovered in my interaction with atheists over the years that I've concluded that this is often what I really think is driving their atheism. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin. So they try to get an easy conscience by denying his existence. Well, Charlie, even if God did exist, the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. It's almost humorous to me today how often people think they can just get the Bible out of the conversation by simply pointing out to you, the Christian, that the Bible was written by men. Like we didn't know that. Of course the Bible was written by men. We're the, we're the first to acknowledge that. We believe that it was men who were guided by God, though, as they pinned down its words. But when someone brings this up with me, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, uh, dictionaries, automobile manuals, everything the IRS sends us. Written by men. Toss it out. <laughs> now, men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as the biblical authors did. Many critics of Christianity today who think that the Bible is just a compilation of myths and legends overlook the fact that there is a wealth of evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness. I have here in mind things like hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries. It's incredible internal harmony. Historical confirmation that we've unearthed in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans. Uh, different scientific discoveries that have verified details in the Bible. That was the topic of the presentation I gave here not too long ago. There was a discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947, which give us the assurance we have accurate copies of all the Old Testament books. There's the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian who verifies dozens of details mentioned in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with that kind of evidence for the Bible and want to quickly get up to speed on it, you can find that stuff laid out in those two books there on the screen. We've got some of those at my book table later tonight if you're interested. But the skeptic says, well, Charlie, after the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in the year 312, the Roman Empire took control of the Bible and tampered with its contents to better control the people. There was a fictional novel that came out way back in 2003 called The Da Vinci Code that popularized this objection. I'm sure some of you remember the book. It was a runaway bestseller. Well, the claim is totally fabricated, and there's absolutely no evidence to support it. If someone tells you that the Roman Empire tampered with the contents of the Bible, you might ask him, how did you come to that conclusion? What evidence led you? to that conclusion. If you'll ask the person that question, you are most likely to get a blank stare back. 
Why is that? Well, because there isn't a shred of evidence that the Roman Empire tampered with even a single book of the Bible. And the ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that predate the time of Constantine prove this to be the case. What do I mean? Well, we know what the Bible said before Constantine was even born around A.D. 280. And when we compare the Bible we have and use today to those ancient manuscript copies of the Bible, we see that it says the same thing it said all the way back in the first, second, and third centuries. All right, another objection I've been hearing more lately has to do with the enormity of the universe. Atheists say this, the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all these other planets and galaxies if the focus of his love was really just right here on our tiny planet. Well, in response to that, I would know that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists, for God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did, including the knowledge that his creatures would find a sky full of stars quite beautiful. That could be sufficient reason in itself. He just wanted you to walk out at night and be blown away by all the stars. I think in reality, the enormity of the universe with all its galaxies and stars proves to be more of a problem for atheists. Why is that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers believe every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith, for we know that nothing cannot do anything, let alone turn itself into billions of stars and planets and moons and all of the matter that makes up the universe. Well, Charlie, it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. Well, that is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the theory of evolution. I can't get into all of them this evening. But I think one fatal blow to the theory of human evolution that Christians would be wise to become more familiar with is the fossil record. The fossil record, if evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers, but it doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed, and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. These facts are devastating to the theory of human evolution. The fossil record is actually evidence for a global flood, as recorded in the book of Genesis, not evolution. And the so-called ape-men fossils that have been uh, offered to the public as proof of human evolution have again and again turned out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists. Consider Piltdown Men. In the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, it was taught in schools as proof of human evolution until it was exposed as a colossal hoax. 40 years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human 
and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. Piltdown man was a forgery. Sorry, kids, 40 years in the textbooks. But what about Neanderthal man? You probably grew up hearing about him and how he was proof of human evolution. School children, again, were taught for decades that Neanderthal man was evidence of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans. Not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. But what about Nebraska man? Nebraska man, as depicted in this artistic propaganda, was based on the discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. Pretty incredible what they can draw up for the textbooks and the museum exhibits based on the discovery of a single tooth, isn't it? I'd walk by that exhibit and think, wow, they must have found the whole village. All kinds of tools and stuff. And No, just one tooth. One tooth. But again, it was sold off to the public as evidence for human evolution until years later when scientists re-examined the tooth and proved that the tooth was the tooth of a pig. Just a pig tooth. That's all it was. And yet they built the exhibits, they, they published these articles in the magazines with all this artwork describing Nebraska man. What about Lucy? Unearthed in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity. In newspapers, textbooks, on television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of humans. Surprise, surprise. How about one more? I'm sure you heard about her. Her name was Ida in the news, 2009. The press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world, they even referred to her as. I thought, here we go again. But Ida, thankfully, was reclassified now as a small-tailed, extinct primate and ancestor, not of humans at all, but of lemurs. Look it up. It always, it always makes a, the, you know, the, there's big headlines when they make the claim and then another scientist or several come along afterwards and prove that those other scientists were lying, fabricating evidence, were totally off base, and then they bury the story and you barely ever find out that these things are being swept under the carpet. Friends, the fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution, and we know why. Humans are not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution. You were created by God. Your human body with its 206 bones, more than 600 muscles and a heart that beats more than 100,000 times a day as it pumps about 75 gallons of blood an hour through more than 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body shouts design from top to bottom. Friend, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator. That's the truth of the matter. And what a blessing to know that a loving creator knit you together in your mother's womb. You're not the product of millions of years of mutations wandering around on some purposeless, meaningless planet. No, you were created by a loving God that you might know him and enjoy a relationship with him in this life and throughout eternity. What a blessing to know. All right, let's look at some more of these. This next objection has become popular on the internet. Atheists and skeptics are saying, well, if God exists, why won't he just heal an amputee by restoring his limb? Then we would all know he exists. 
Some atheists got together a while back and decided that this would be the miracle that they would accept as sufficient proof for God's existence. But since God hasn't yet healed an amputee, since atheists haven't witnessed an amputee having his limb restored, they have again confidently concluded God must not exist. Question for you. If people reported that an amputee had his arm miraculously restored, do you think many atheists would admit God exists and begin a relationship with them? I have a hard time envisioning that. Think back to that night Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he miraculously restored the missing ear of the high priest's servant. Did the people repent and believe in Jesus when they beheld the miracle? No, not at all. In fact, they continued arresting him, then led him off to be brutally beaten and put to death on a Roman cross a few hours later. How about the times Jesus raised dead people back to life? Those were greater miracles than restoring missing limbs. Surely everyone would repent and believe in Jesus after those astounding miracles. No. Those who hated Jesus concluded that he accomplished his miracles with the help of demonic powers in Matthew chapter 12. But what if Jesus empowered his followers to perform miracles? Maybe people would believe in him then. Well, that's the very thing Jesus did with his first disciples. He sent them out to the world with the power to perform miracles. And the Gospels and the book of Acts record for us that God wrought many miracles through them. And they were subsequently beaten, imprisoned, and put to death by people who didn't want to repent. People who want to continue in sin are always able to find an excuse to reject God. So miracles really aren't that effective at changing people's minds or hearts. They rarely produce the kinds of results atheists say they would. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they reject the written word of God, their hearts will not be changed by miraculous acts of God. That is often the case, isn't it? Another objection we're hearing more today concerns the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Critics of Christianity point out that Jesus said to love people. Even your enemies in Matthew chapter 5. Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Well, I think it's important that we point out to people that we certainly do not hate or reject people who identify as such. Many of us have a family member or a friend or a co-worker who identifies as a homosexual or a lesbian, and we love these people dearly. In fact, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I've traveled the country, spoken in hundreds of churches. I've never heard a Christian tell me that they hate homosexuals or lesbians. The Christian view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the people engaging in that behavior. My wife and I have five kids. And we look at some of their behavior sometimes, and we do not approve. And we'll tell them that occasionally. You know, what you're doing is sinful. It's grieving to the Lord. The way you're treating your sibling right now is awful. You know, we'll call them out on some activity that they're engaged in. Question for you. Does that mean I hate my kids? Of course not. I actually tell them that because I love them and want to see them uh, align their lives, their activities with God's will for them, that God might bless them and use them to be a blessing to other people. 
Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. If disagreeing equaled hatred, then our critics would be guilty of the very behavior they accuse Christians of because they disagree with us on a variety of things. So we distinguish between the person and the practice. It's only same gender sexual activity we're opposed to on biblical grounds because God doesn't approve of it. But it's not the persons engaging in that activity. We don't reject them or hate them at all. We love them just as we're called to love all people. We also disagree with um, adultery and fornication. Those are activities that we cannot applaud. Does that mean that we hate those people too? Well, of course not. Those are activities that we disagree with them. We believe that those are sinful activities because God has called those activities sinful. But we can still love the people that are engaged in those activities. All right, well, try the Bible. The Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If someone tells you this, you might ask the person, have you studied the Bible? Now, watch your tone. I'm not encouraging you to be snarky here. <laughs> have you ever even read the Bible? No, <laughs> don't ask it like that. Just in, as, as humbly as you can ask it, have you studied the Bible? If the person says, yes, I have. I've studied the Bible, you know, I've gone to church or whatever for many years. Well, follow up with them and say, well, what passages did you find most oppressive? Tell me about them. Let's talk about them and see what the, the person says. I've been re reading and studying the Bible since I became a Christian in 1990, so more than 30 years. And I've come to the conclusion after many trips through the Bible that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. But who cares what I think? Millions of women all over the world who read the Bible on a daily basis have also come to the same conclusion. That the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves. They've read about the friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth, Deborah, Priscilla, and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light. And they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife, and rape. Friends, if more people followed Jesus' instructions, the world would be a much better place for women today. You can be sure of that. Well, our atheist friend says, religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests, and others have done things that are terribly hurtful to people. There's no denying that. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. The evil things that people do go against Jesus' instructions. Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others the way we would like to be treated. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 12, he said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. If you want people to be friendly and kind and forgiving with you, well, then Jesus would say, You be friendly and kind. And forgiving with them. This is known as the golden rule. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Imagine how much better off the world would be today if more people did that. 
So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is this. Atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Richard Dawkins doesn't like to point that out in his books. Facts like uh, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Mao Zedong murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That's far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past 500 years. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering, especially Christianity. All right, allow me to respond to one last objection. If you're out sharing the gospel with people on the street somewhere with a team or maybe just a friend, it's not uncommon to have someone come up to you or to your group and say, you should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, in response to this, I think it's pretty rare that Christians are actually out trying to force people to hear what we have to say. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really all we're trying to do. We're not trying to force people to believe. We're explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life to people. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If someone had the cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider it a crime. Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. That's why Christians are trying to get the gospel out to people. Because of Jesus' death in your place... For your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of all your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and condemnation for our sins, and yet God says, actually, I've got something way better for you. Forgiveness of all your sins and the free gift of everlasting life. How do you lay hold of that? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. God's done all the work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus. And you can do that tonight. God's a prayer away. You can call it to him tonight and just say, God, thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ tonight to save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put that off. For the rest of you who've already done that, May the God of heaven and earth empower and embolden you to share the gospel and when necessary to contend earnestly for the faith as we're told to do in the book of Jude. Amen? Amen. Well, I hope that was helpful to you. If you'd like to go a little deeper, I want to point out a couple of resources for you. I'll put them back up on the screen here. The first resource is this book. Everything I shared with you in tonight's presentation is extracted out of this book. It's called One Minute Answers to Skeptics, uh, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions. So we went through 10 or 12 tonight. If you'd like to go through Several more. You might pick up a copy of that on your way out. Another book, um, if you like tonight's format, just some concise 
nuggets of truth can be found in this book. It's called Apologetics Quotes. I've been collecting quotes by leading defenders of the Christian faith for the past 30 years. C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, and so on. And I've organized about 500 of my favorite all-time quotes into this one book, and it's got an index in the back. So if you're looking for a quote on any particular topic from A to Z, you can quickly find it there in the book. And then um, if you stop by my resource table on your way out, you're going to see we've got 34 DVDs out there on a wide range of topics that I speak on in churches around the country. But we know that most of you donated your DVD player to the Salvation Army like 15 years ago. So what we've decided to do is continue to create content, but now we're putting all of the videos onto a little USB flash drive the size of a AA battery. So if you're interested in those kinds of videos and would like to own the whole set, you can stop by our table, pick one of those up, stick it in a USB drive on your television set and watch any of the videos there. You can stick it into a computer, USB port, watch the videos there, or even uh, transfer the videos onto your iPad or iPhone. We give you some simple instructions on how to do that. So thought I'd highlight some additional resources that might um, help you continue to go deeper into the kinds of things we talked about here tonight. Let's go ahead and pray, and I believe we're going to close with a song. Heavenly Father, God, what a blessing to open up your word together tonight. And Lord, we're thankful that we can have a reasonable faith as Christians, a faith that stands up to the critics, a faith that has answers, a faith that is rooted and grounded in the truth, God. And Lord, we do pray that you would burden our hearts for those who do not yet know you in a personal saving way. Many of us have friends at work or in our neighborhood who don't yet know you. God, we pray that you would use us and others in their lives to share the gospel with them and reason with them and uh, get the truth out to them. And Lord, we pray for anyone here tonight. Maybe they came to church. Maybe they were invited by a friend and they wouldn't consider themselves a follower of Jesus yet. God, we pray that tonight would be the night that they turn around and enter into a relationship with you and your son, Jesus Christ. Work in their hearts to that end, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.